Okay, I'm excited to introduce many of you to Kathy Nisi. Kathy's a staff doc at Loyola, but used to be at Regions Hospital. As such, many at Regions know Kathy, and many don't. I personally learned a great deal from Kathy, who was a faculty member when I was a resident. She brought an intensity and a style to emergency medicine like few others have. I guarantee she's left an imprint on most residents she's trained and the staff with whom she's worked. Kathy's strong and direct, but her interview definitely shows her humility. I loved her reflection on her career so far, alongside some of her strategies for dealing with stressful situations that appear in the typical shift. So let's get on with it. Let's hear from Kathy. So let's go ahead and get started, if you Sounds don't mind. Great. So, um, so Kathy, thank you for being a part of this exciting experiment of mine that's called Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. I know that this is the highlight of your trip to the Twin <laughs> Cities for the holiday. It's really great, though, talking to you about something that we shared a long time ago, and both of us being more advanced in our careers, and to be able to take our relationship um, into a place of where is your career gone, and how have you managed and processed the different components from a mature physician perspective, and being able to share and discuss this, because I'm sure as we will touch, there's an isolating component of being both a private practice and an academic emergency physician, that we rarely indulge ourselves in really, how are you doing this? Yeah. And this is where I'm stumbling and not wanting to admit that and not really having the time space or headspace to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that's exactly where I'm hoping that people who often aren't, you know, we don't have staff meetings where we like uh, we get together and share frustrating cases and how did you handle that? Or I'm I'm scared I won't be able to learn this new procedure. You just go in and you like nod your head. Yep, I'll figure that out. And if you were at that meeting, but um, but my hope is like we were talking about a bit before we started recording, like you probably did do that when you were a resident and you were just in a resident room and you had a, a bit more of a safe environment where you're all in the same cohort of class. You probably did some team building exercise or something as you started and you and you're like, hey, I don't know how you do like do you have any tricks for figuring that out? And my hope is that when it comes to kind of the the details of getting through a shift or life in general, uh, that people will be willing to listen to these interviews in a way that gives them new perspective and connections with people that they know or they even don't know, but are willing to kind of listen to the passion in their voice and what's and it's often the vulnerability of what's hurt them or what didn't go so well, what lessons they learned as part of the process. So, you know, I think the big opening question I've asked a lot of people is um, um, something more in the lines of, you know, do you enjoy your job? Do you enjoy going to work? And the answer isn't always um, yes. Am I pause? I love it. See, <laughs> the pause is perfect. The pause. Um, yes, I would say that there. Um, the the biggest caveat to that is, had I answered that question fifteen years ago, it would have been with a vigor and enthusiasm, and this is a blast, and we're doing the most important work, and um, I'm tired, but I'm excited, and now the. I guess the caveat is still the sense of what that we're doing really important work that the intimate patient interactions 
are really important and gratifying. Um, I still am humbled by the fact that we of most practices are at the crossroads, the intimate crossroads of patients' lives changing and what an honor that is. The softer side of dissatisfaction, I think, is my slow recognition of um, that I'm slowing down a little bit, that my ability to manage compassion fatigue is something that I haven't really addressed or handled well, so that when it becomes part of my shift or it becomes part of my headspace or it interferes with my ability to connect with people or my peers, that that always takes me by surprise. That sort of, is this happening again? Or I can't believe this. Or the, what is really, what are you doing here? And we don't like to say that, but a lot of times we look at patients and look and say, "Are, are you joking? Are you, what are you? Why are you here? Right. And that compassion fatigue has, continues to take me by surprise and sort of disappoints me in yeah. myself. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where, um, I mean, that moment, you kind of described that moment of recognition where the, um, like it happens to you all of a sudden and it, um, and, and it takes you to a whole new place quickly, right? It's like, hey, this has probably happened, but it's not a subtle so oftentimes it can be an abrupt something that shakes you to reality. Like I'm not being quite the caring person that I wanted to be when I started the day or something like that. And, or I'm not masking it enough mm-hmm. for what this person's need is all of a sudden I'm just like, what the hell are you? <laughs> right. And you know, one of the ways that I find it comes out in my day-to-day practice is I may be either emotionally fatigued or physically fatigued and will find that the place where I push back is with my consultant. Oh yeah. And the, everything is stacking up and the patient is, is needy or sick. The nurses are overwhelmed and my people are bearing the weight of this. And then a consultant pushes back about, can I get a transplant ultrasound before the patient goes up? And then I find that that's the place where I will get a little like snarly or pushback because they don't really seem like they're part of my team. They are part of my team. And yet it's that, at least for me, that's one of the ways that it comes out. And what do you do in that moment? Do you feel like it's okay to show that anger or that frustration? Do you feel like you've got kind of, you've built like a deep breath into that and you, um, or like for me, I think I was kind of almost describing a version of this when I had multiple sick patients, a bunch of patients I hadn't seen and my residents and PAs were working like crazy, like crazy. And uh, yet admittedly, this patient had a blood pressure, you know, bouncing into the 50s, occasionally with bradycardia, which worried the heck out of me. I didn't want him to be in the elevator coding. But I also knew that like the team was sitting there in front of the intensive care team could have put the line in that they were like, well, why don't you put the line in? I'm like, well, we're also trying to intubate your other patient <laughs> that I know you can't do. So can we go intubate them while you're putting the line in? Well, like we can do up there. I'm like, well, he can't go up. 
So I kind of like, okay, well, we'll just temporize and we'll, we'll put the line it. in too mm-hmm. instead of and just I take it on instead of getting sometimes I'm like just put, go put the goddamn line in do you think that that <laughs> component is bred into our training or do you think that that's a personality component that is present in a lot of residents that brings them into emergency medicine which is the overarching description is I'm the first line provider I have this enormous skill set your waffling, never mind, I will manage this. Yeah, I think um, I think it's both. I think it's a bit of the culture of the organization. It's pro- It's got to be some of the stuff, just how you manage life. Um, Keith Henry and I were doing our interview, and he really talked about defining your role as emergency physicians. And I think, you know, and it's, it's so easy, but and attempting to be the person who can just do it all. Everything. And, um, and I think... I think I also have thought about non-emergency medicine people I've listened to when they say, like, if you're the only one who can do it, then you should probably be doing it. If somebody else can do it, then ideally you've set up a world in which they can do that. And that applies, in my mind, to, like, nursing versus physician questions. Um, Mm -hmm. They should go to the the only one who can write a narcotic order or can somebody else write it, like... Or is, or consultant? Are they the, really the only one who can put the foley in, or can you do it too? Um, can, can are you? And I think that that's a tricky. It doesn't map to perfect binary resolution in every case. And it doesn't. And it can it it can appropriately fluctuate depending on what your department looks like and what your staffing is doing. But I think, and that get, I think adds complexity enough that depending on your. If one day you're doing it, one day you're not, that's confusing to everybody else. So the beauty of being in practice in the same place over a period of time is that your peers and your consultants over time know what your work ethic is and what your skill set is. So that I feel like there's a luxury after a period of time where I can say to um, maybe a plastic surgeon who knows I can, I'm fully capable of repairing this complex facial lack. And I can say, we're getting slammed. And this normally would not go to you. Will you participate at this point? (laughs) And when you have those relationships, you can spell it out in that way. And I think there's also when you're, when you're younger, earlier in your practice, you don't want to tip your cards as far as weaknesses. The department's overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed. We're down a staff. I think at the beginning of my career, I didn't want to express that that there's a gap in what I'm able to do because I have the white hat on and I can do everything. And as I've gotten more humbler and I have relationships where I feel like they know 99% of the time I'm going to be able to bring this to the table and I'm asking for help and I'm not waffling. I'm 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 asking for help because of a reason that you know yeah. is the context. And the I think context, that's exactly. where um I think and that's such a higher order brain function that my hope is that when I am slammed, I've reserved just enough power mm-hmm. to have that. Here's how I need to express it to them in a non, just please do it. <laughs> and more of a, please do it because I've got X and I just don't see that I can, that I guess maybe that's even, I'm having trouble doing it right now. Just saying like, I've got, 
this context and I've got six people who haven't seen, I haven't seen yet, mm-hmm. who've been waiting a bunch of times. And I know that if that were one of our family members, we just would be frustrated with that. So if you can do it at all, it would make it so much better for these other patients or something like that. Right. And is it, it's funny because even as you say, like as we're having this conversation and we've known each other for 20 years and it's hard to ask for help in a directed way in this very comfortable environment, much less to do it when bells are ringing and people are looking at you for leadership and uh, momentum and efficiency and compassion. And I think that's where you get into um, somebody from our hospital medicine group the other day just turned to me at a meeting and said, you guys have a really good group. And I'm like, that's cool to hear. And there's so many ways that that baseline level of trust can translate into not even having to tell people why and just say, hey, I need you to take this patient mm-hmm. for me. And it could be because it's a social nightmare. It's because it um, because of the department falling apart. And that's a lot of where you're trying to maintain these relationships. Because the flip side is I had, you know, sign out. We tried to put the shoulder in, including the ortho resident. None of us could get it in, you know, and then the new ortho team and the new doc was like, well, we're going to have the fellow come and put it in. They couldn't get it in. Um, and you know, but the trust level that a lot of groups would have of like, if the ER doc can't get it in, it's probably not likely that I'm bringing a magic to it. And it's probably more a context about the patient. Correct. And why waste my time? Let's just bring them in and put them in the OR in the morning. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. that kind Mm -hmm. of a thing is what happened, but I, you know. Right, the way that I am billing this to you because I have because I have clinical history with you and I have relational history with you, that when I say this is what I'm looking at, that you are, you can, you're going to pick up my story with trust and clinical participation. And that is a, that is a luxury that you forget you have until you don't have it. So just to build on that and ask more like, what could others do? Do you have ways that you think you either pull yourself into that moment and and center like a deep breath, or do you have um, ways that you've helped set that context for your department for some future thing? You, and, and this is pretty hard to answer, I think. But is your question when um, I'm at that cross, crossroads where it has that feeling like things are going to decompress rapidly, or? Um, emotions are getting sort of accentuated in a in a negative way. Like yeah. when you feel that momentum, are you asking what I would do to sort of yeah. derail that and get the department back on track? Yeah, I guess I, I'm trying to think of um, in that moment, you have your own personal like actions. I can try to answer the question. I can get angry, mm-hmm. which I think is sometimes is the right choice is just to say, look, this is inappropriate. I need to just do this and we can figure it out in the morning. If you want to complain about me, that's not often the way people want to go. Correct. Sometimes it Correct. is. Because backtracking from that is very difficult. Right. Um, um, so there's there's two folds. One is when the my staff is is either stressed or I'm particularly snarky or I'm bristly and ineffective with my ER peers. And I'm pretty transparent emotionally. So I feel like I have the relationships where I can tell a nurse, I'm really, I'm sort of spent. I'm not going to be very helpful in the next five or 10 minutes. Um, totally listening to what you're saying. This is not a good time. Um, that's 
that's like family relationships. That's like walking away from the dining room table when you're gonna when you're gonna yell at somebody. And, the consult- and you do that. I do do that, but I think that's also. I, I don't think you, that may or may not be universal. But that's so much of my personality <laughs> that I think that I'm pretty transparent, and people can sort of sense where I am within a couple of minutes. And I also will own it. This is not you. I am not mad about the way that that went. I. I'm questioning how I handled it and I'm going to revisit this and I'll talk to you in but 20 minutes. But I think minutes. that's showing that the vulnerability is if I categorize it in that kind of a theme, like, I, you know, and again, I keep pulling up some of the things even in five interviews, like Jesse Nelson said, like, I just tell people I'm a better doctor after I've gone to the bathroom. And, and that simple statement is relatable to any human. Mm-hmm. And, and it gives her both time to just, disconnect and like we don't have to do this this second and i can go take care of myself for a minute and correct or and, standing at the charger desk and saying i need a snack and oh i see and, like that and the and and my peer group will go oh you know niecy's cranky somebody have some graham crackers and start throwing them at her um uh and you know that's that's a rhythm of that's a relational rhythm within peers that I know really well that I've yeah. known for 15 years. When it comes into the circumstance of consultants, um, especially if it's a phone consultant with someone that I don't know that well, I think, have I had to backtrack with someone and call them back and say, look, here's what was going on when I had this conversation with you and now I've had five minutes to think about it. And what I really need from you is to look at this MRI and help me with decision-making. I certainly have had to eat crow or have chosen to eat crow and make that second phone call and say, I think I was giving you a different impression of, you know, where I needed help on this or what your part in this care is. Um, But I also know that I'm able to do that. That also is part of my personality where I'm totally happy to go, oh, yeah, sorry, I sort of... Did that thing. Whereas not everyone is comfortable with that. And so that's yeah. helpful. And, uh, you know, the residents will come in. You know, we have, we don't have emergency medicine residents right now, but we have every layer of consulting residents. And sometimes they, you forget what it's like to be a resident and to be juggling floor patients and having to encourage them to participate in care in a teaching way that's not, I asked you to come down, come down. That doesn't help anyone. Yeah. But, I, you know, you do that, I do that. Because mm-hmm. I'm the attending and I have a gray coat on and I need you to come down. That's never ideal, but... Full rank kind of thing, but yeah. <sighs> I think yeah. Um, and sometimes I think that's where... Residents, I, it's less... I What I don't think they get, they... So even saying they, but people in a role where they're moving from context to context, often it's not so much about being a resident, but not being a part of the day-to-day culture um, mm-hmm. around. And sometimes they are depending on where they are. But like a, for us, we might have a, a person who's just not living in that world. And you kind of have to just say, look, um, we could talk about what the system around this is that I'm asking you to do something that you don't think you need to do. But the system is like you're really the person that has to do that, whether it's come see the patient before I do an imaging test mm-hmm. or, or... Or I paralyze and sedate them, sedate them paralyze yeah. and debate them because you're going to want your exam now. Yeah. So I think those are the things that you just have to be explicit about and trying to figure out how to do that. It's not so much trying to figure it out. It's probably just continually taking care of yourself 
I don't want to say minute to minute, but kind of minute to minute during a shift, especially when it gets busy, to just say, I need a minute before I call this consultant. Right, the person And having the thought process to not have them paged if you just need to breathe for a few minutes or go get some graham crackers, um, (laughs) I think is, and that's a lot of it. And I, I think it's a lifelong, I don't think you can even have that thought process if you came into the shift tired because you booked a flight that landed 30 minutes before your shift. Or right, or you got in a fight with a family member yeah. or you got, you know, I mean, everybody is has their life that's interfacing with their shift. Yeah. And few people's lives are going to interface with an environment as stressful as ours. Yeah. And because we've been doing it for a period of time, I th- I don't think we let ourselves off the hook and realize that we're making that very rapid transition because right. we've done it so many times, right. taking sign out and jumping in. Hmm. Um, so uh, to go back to your comment about the, the skill that I think is necessary of checking in with yourself, whether it be minute by minute, or I haven't had anything to eat, or the shift is going terribly and why I'm so frustrated. Do you think that that, whether it be emotional maturity or, um, that personality component where you can be in the middle of the maelstrom and check in with yourself is something that is a teachable skill or a modeling skill for your residents or a, or do you think that people either have it and want to practice in that way or they don't have it? Because I have thought a lot, like, I feel like this is yet another skill like ultrasound that I should be able to check in with myself more frequently and be more effective and be calmer and be a different kind of mentor and leader in the department. I think it's a, it's probably mostly modeling. I think it's it depends on if you have a relationship. Like like you mentioned the word resident. Like if if I'm supervising a resident... I think I try to use language that says, and I and I'm probably modeling teachers of me, like you and others, to just like check in and say, "Boy, is that really what I want? Is that?" I'm just thinking about what you just said, and it may not connect, and that causes somebody to pause mm-hmm. and and rethink of either the context in which they said it or the actual like I wanted to do X, but you're thinking Y, um, or just things like that. Patient might be sicker than you think, or. Um, did, did that conversation go as well as you envisioned it? I think those are some of the things that I might use to, with a resident to try to help that get them prompt a reflection. Because I think back in the end, it's it's very difficult to tell somebody how to feel or how to talk. It's probably better to just get them at the right time to reflect on their own behavior mm-hmm. and see, is that right where you wanted mm-hmm. it to be? And then if it is... Then I think you can, or if they're like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to say. And you're kind of still at a disconnect, like, but what if you had done it this way? Then I think you have an opening to say. Um, Is that the outcome I'm not that you not entirely wanted? sure. You, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's actually another. You can kind of go like, but then is that where you wanted it to go? Like, no. I'm like, well, what do you think he heard? Like, if you're talking about a conversation. And I've done this when I've had the occasional had to mediate the nurse versus resident sure, in our context. A- but I'm sure that even if you're a department leader and there's no supervision or there's PAs, or some reason that you are being asked to intervene in an interpersonal conflict is not often if it's just, quote, just you're just the staff doc in an ER and it's 
just the nurse that like there might be a charge or something if somebody's in a leadership role that you're often being asked to kind of mediate something but um but i think in those cases um still having the vulnerability or the willingness to stop and go boy somebody may is the reason they're asking me this is probably to get me to (laughs) reflect and if they're asking me that like maybe at least their perception of how it went could have been improvement and then that that causes you to question what you thought may have went perfectly now you're like well maybe it didn't go as well as i thought right and i had um two peds residents um that i was supervising in the last couple of months one got thrown out of a patient's room and said that that family's leaving AMA before you see them. So this is what shook down and um, too bad, so sad they're leaving. And sort of scrambling to try and keep the family in the system and then tease through what conversation or communication components yeah. had caused that crisis. Right. Um, and then another resident who had a very dicey situation and who ended up in tears as a result of the miscommunication and what she felt was her role in derailing care and derailing communication. And in both of those, those residents were very different. One was crying because she felt, um, you know, both a responsibility and obligation and had perceived a misstep. And the other was impervious to feedback. Those people are just, you know, well, they, it's their fault. It's their fault. It's their right, fault. Right, it's their right. fault. And, how do you how do you introduce your own desire to do introspection in those moments and one model it like you said this is how i would have handled it this was the outcome um and i think it's yeah it's well a lot of it comes down to how much you're gonna try to even like you're making these judgments in those moments of is this person impervious Mm -hmm. is this person important to me enough for some reason that I have to break through as much of it as possible. Like mm-hmm. I'm their direct advisor and mentor and my, they're my last shot. Like I'm their last shot of preserving their role in this situation, like either their residency or their staff physician. Like I'm a friend and I want to really keep them on our group. They're really great, but they just keep putting themselves in, you know, on top of landmines Correct. Like that's and, one and, situation. And and is where's and within the whole teaching realm, where does humanity come in? And is it is right. that my teaching role right now? And recognizing that in the clinical milieu. Yeah. Right. Well, I think um boy, there's so much in that that I don't think I can unpack right now. Uh, well, I already just like as we get into a lot of these deeper topics, I, I think a lot of it is just how you carry yourself and 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 modeling i think is even beyond this is just trying to help people go like a lot of the ways you're teaching her in those moments when you decide to go take a breath or go get some graham crackers because i think that's where other people start to realize it's okay to have those moments as much as like the nonverbal yeah. cues of if teaching. This, if the, because this person is taking themselves out of the department, this is a seasoned right. 20 year plus attending who is right. walking out of the department to get a cup of coffee and gives himself or herself permission to do that. I'm going to be able to check in with myself and do that as and, well. And, and in the same negative way, the ant, like the person who you're like offhandedly disparaging a patient and right. creating 
clear lack of respect for somebody, that same type of thing, if they can do it, then that gives permission to somebody else often. So I think a lot of that is just trying to figure out how to carry yourself. I wanted to ask a little bit more about, you've had some transitions in your career Mm -hmm. that very, I don't say very different, but through different, maybe they are very different types of practice. Mm -hmm. Um, you w- taught me at Regions. You moved to Chicago. You have been at a academic institution. You've moved to a community. You've done both at the same time. Um, what kinds of things have you learned from that at, at a very broad level? We can go into details that you might tell somebody who's who's just leaving residency or has been out for a couple years and is trying to figure out things. Are there any little points of wisdom you'd be like man always do or never do or- um you know and maybe the common theme of our conversation is going to be how well do you know yourself and how do you do self assessment in a way that's going to enhance success for you personally and professionally and so the short synopsis is i must as you know i'm a second career physician so i was in a medical device marketing and sales for 10 years. So I was a late, I was late coming to medicine um, and was throughout residency and the year after residency when I stayed on for a chief year and then coming to regions. The the exciting component of being in academics and having the balance between being on the front end of research and teaching and molding and that those academic discussions that you have in conferences and that you have at the bedside and that you have at sign out was something that I had so taken for granted that I didn't realize what that meant as part of my practice. So there's 15 years of having that mixed piece of the pie, as well as the clinical part. And the point at which I made the decision or looked at going into community medicine was a product of a very long commute, a little bit of not compassion fatigue, but fatigue. I'm driving an hour and 20 minutes to work. I'm in an inner city hospital. I'm uh, I'm two minutes away from a large community hospital that's busy, that practices good medicine. Why am I not doing this? This makes so much more sense for my family and for my lifestyle. And I am at a point right now where I need to maybe do swing the balance over that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an interesting exercise. It was not the right place for me. And the very personal reasons why it wasn't the right place for me, I think boiled down to... This sounds sort of like, but there's a there the the setup there was pods, three nurses, one doc, and one tech, and there is within an eight hour shift a tremendous amount of sort of loneliness in practicing high volume emergency medicine with no one to bounce anything off of, and um, those small things that you take for granted in an academic environment where you can say, like for example, for me, I've never liked rashes. <laughs> so that is the classic, hey, Brad, can you look at this rash? Mm-hmm. So the collegiality and the exhale that comes from running something by a peer and the ability to turn a common clinical situation into something interesting or a discussion or collaborative, I felt was going to be existent everywhere. And not having ever been in a busy community hospital where you were moving so fast that that collaborative part and that conversational part and that collegial part was absent was 
was a more profound change than I was ever able to to attribute it. And it's, I think if you like teaching and you like um, meeting people that are earlier in the process than you are, when that's gone, it feels it it feels like a different work environment. It's not clinical care that one patient that's in front of you is the same patient in a medical center, in a community hospital, in a rural hospital. That one-on-one interaction at the bedside really is transferable to any environment. And what you do at the bedside is the same. But um, I think for me at that point, looking at this big cash of money in a community hospital and a very short commute was so grossly offset by what I missed in a peer-based environment mm-hmm. that it it was pretty quickly evident to me that I that it was not, probably not the right mix for me. So a lot of that um, feels like, you know, I would say there's an element of trying to have, as you particularly leave residency or you choose any job, you really are trying to figure out what am I looking to do during the day? And and it's amazing, even within emergency medicine, how different of a life you can have, whether it's community, academic, rural, even um, longer shifts, shorter shifts, intense shifts, mm-hmm. um, shifts that are focused on throughput, shifts that are focused on complexity. Um, and a lot of that Oh gosh, I think some of the best advice I've heard is, you know, don't necessarily anchor yourself. Where do you think you're going to be in those first few years mm-hmm. out? Because Absolutely. you might have to play around with it a bit and find what's comfortable for you, where you want to spend your time. I think that's exactly right. And I, I mean, I would say I, I mean, I started medicine when I was 30. I probably had the luxury of being able to have several jobs and learn a little bit more out of myself. But I think how challenging is that for a medical student or a resident or a new grad that has gone through the system in a traditional way and all of a sudden you're 27 or 28 and the first time you're really assessing who you are in a work environment, life, work balance, the first time you're doing that is when the stakes feel really high or they they probably are perceived to be really high. Yeah. Did you feel like when you went to the community setting, you had the skill set to do what they were doing and you just didn't like the context very much? Or do you feel like, boy, That's a great there's question. a level of, um, of speed mm-hmm. that, boy, it's hard to realize how long it takes you to refine this level mm-hmm. of speed that they have? That's a great question. I... Um I certainly had many moments where I was so overwhelmed that I felt like a second year resident, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've lost control of my department. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what I'm, I'm wired in a way that I am pretty fast. Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel like, I mean, I felt like it was, it was overwhelming at many points points, but I felt like I kept up with the volume. But the what I felt like 
I did not keep up with was going back to the room and reassessing and educating the patient and saying, you know, I've got all your lab tests back and everything looks fine. A lot of times under those circumstances, things were normal. This is rapid AFib. They are rate controlled now. They are already gone out of the department before I've had a chance to sit at the bedside again. And do you think that's the, I don't mean to call out any specific, like, good or, that's one of my worries about this whole endeavor is making something that's like, boy, that's not, doesn't sound great in this context of this podcast, being clear about a specific mm-hmm. place. But do you think that that's a common culture in a, in more community medicine, that that's the need is to be that fast. You have to, I don't mean, I don't want to use the word sacrifice, but I am, um, do well, some of the stuff that in a different setting. You no, no, and, like- and, and you're right, because I think that there were moments where I in maybe in order for me to make the decision to go back into academic medicine is I had to put labels on this system is bad and this system is good in order to help prompt right. me along the decision-making route. Yeah. And from the perspective of, of a little bit of time is it isn't good or bad. It's a way versus another yeah. way. And for example, those... I like how you put that up. Well, though, I'm, I mean, I think in that system, which was extremely efficient and very tight with fantastic committed hospitalists. The rule that I had was to move the critical care along and allow the hospitalists and the second tier to do the communication and the revisiting. Whereas in academics, I feel like that is part of my practice and it's a part that I like. So I was unwilling to let go of it. So the wrongness that I attributed to that way of practicing was just a different way. Different. That stuff gets done. Those patients, yeah, they, they tend to be satisfied. Yeah. I mean, it happens to be a community hospital where my mom goes and my mom's friends and my neighbors go. So I know the level of patient satisfaction within that system. Right. Um, so it just was, again, it's one of those, this is not me. I thought it was me. This is not me, but not good or bad. And plenty of my ER attending peers had been doing it for many years and had a tremendous level of job satisfaction. So that is a job that's right for um, a particular personality set. And I think that's where, um, as you talk about what happens in academic settings, is I think because there is a learner who is sort of learning all aspects of the whole visit, maybe not to the level of drawing the blood, but at some places mm-hmm. drawing mm-hmm. the blood, um, they end up doing all of it, like the tr- like tray set up, and they end up doing this. And the transition to a community practice is like, your role just can't be to do that. And, and some of that, it turns into even like at discharge, delegating to the nurse to do some more of the, or, or admission, mm-hmm. do some of the teaching, some of the context, trust them to tell you if there's, something that is above their pay grade, a question that's got asked or something. But a lot of it is like, you know, we talk about it a little bit as residents get to the second year, start to take, and I think this word shortcut becomes pejorative, but like the the classic ankle sprain, I was x-ray negative, exact, mm-hmm. do I need to go see them? Does the, is the patient need from the doctor the rest, ice, elevation, air splint, or can I put in a few orders or can I even just tell the nurse, like, do the rice thing and Mm -hmm. discharge and then they're going to get the right instructions. They're going to 
get you recommended how to use over-the-counter ibuprofen at appropriate doses and I can be on to the next person or do I really need to be in there talking them through I, that? I think or, that is a perfect example. And when can you, when can you draw a line in the sand and trust your, um, trust your support staff? I mean, not support because I think we're peers, but that you can say, I am done you all have the skill set, and if the patient has questions about their crutches or they're really pushing back about the X-rays, then I'll get involved at that point. Right. And I and I will say the the beauty of having that year and a half that I was in the community is it has focused the important parts of my practice a little more clearly. For example, if the nurses were behind, I would have no problem putting a Foley in because I'm sitting here, I'm doing notes or I'm talking to someone and I would, whereas now I have a better maybe delineation of the best thing for my system is for me to be a doctor and for me to do, whether it be notes or consultants or um, chart review or to do the doctor part of it and to really let go of this is the line where your job comes in and my job ends. Yeah. And, um, yep. I, I, um, it's funny. I just, those critical patients I was talking about, like they could not get the ABG and we were trying to decide to intubate this person. And I'm plus or minus on ABGs to decide to input, but the criti- intensivist was involved and we were trying to figure out how to get numbers. And I was trying to say like, probably you should just come down and look at this patient. Cause I don't want them to get to the floor and intubate 20 minutes later. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I can, we can try to get an ABG because it's, but we're not getting it. We've run like poke three. So I went and tried to do one. I got a little bit. It frustrated me that I didn't get as mm-hmm. much as I wanted because you wanted to. And I thought in retrospect, boy, that was an interesting use of my time. Was that effective? Right. So there's 15 or 20 minutes that are out of your eight hour shift where you're having the discussions about the ABG. You're giving someone else a pointer on how to do it. And then all of a sudden you're at the bedside and you're distracted from something else that might be a more critical role. And that's where I kind of, kind of have to say both to pull a few different things together that you've mentioned, like in our culture, could I have been more bold about saying, I need you to come down and just look at this patient. If you want me to intubate them, tell me so, or I'm sending them to the floor. We can't get an eBay G the team's tried. Um, and so we can't use that in our decision-making and I'm going to go be seeing the next patient while you do that. And if, if nothing s- happens in the next 20 minutes, they're coming up right. and, and cause their bed's ready. Mm-hmm. And so like having that wisdom is something I'm still trying to figure out how to do. And, and I would even push that as to say, I'm trying to push the culture cause the, cause I feel like one of my jobs as a physician is to try to get the group's culture where we want it to be, mm-hmm. where it may not be right now. And that's back to that question that I think I was talking about the trust of your consultants or something. I think one of our, the only thing that a, a, a lead physician or not a lead, um, a group of, even if it's a small group of eight docs that are covering a community, like they, as a group have to move their culture. The nurses can't do it for them. Their consultants can't mm-hmm. do it for them. They have to define that role and you have to do that somewhat collectively and one of those ways, I think, over time that builds those new systems that say, we're going to make sure all our nurses know how to discharge people 
in a way that the patients are happy, they get the information they need, but I don't need to go back in there and say, your x-ray of your ankle sprain was negative, like I thought it would be, um, here's the things you can do to recover it. Right, and I think on a broader sense, as this generation, as my generation matures through um, very little administrative oversight or or direction to massive amounts of changes in um, billing efficiencies, metrics, RVUs, to the current place where we are right now, which is how do the physicians do the directive stuff and take ownership of the clinical milieu with respect to the system? So I'm I have an obligation to my organization to be efficient, to chart in a particular way, to be able to capture the charges associated with the work that I've done, to be able to respect and be responsible to that organization. But at the same time, to balance that against what are some of the key metrics in physician burnout, which is I've lost control. I don't have any say in the way that my patient care is delivered or the way that my department is is run. And that that when and I think our system right now is doing a very comprehensive physician burnout um, intervention survey and wellness p- program, yeah. which is I think is is great. It's late. It's multi. It's it's multi tiered. Um, but that component of I am giving a hundred and fifty percent every time, and yet I feel like I have no ability to control my patient interactions or the things that give me gratification at the bedside. Another huge topic. It's a huge topic. A lot of the meta, like the highest level of this specific project of mine is to really try to say, there's so so many multifactorial things that that go into your burnout, at least in my own life, um, and the things that our external locus of control, like what can my organization do to make me less burned out, are probably minimal compared to my internal locus of control about how can I carry myself day to day to just have reframe. And and my hope is that through whatever topic people use these interviews to reframe a bit on like, hey, uh, it's okay to be frustrated to have periods in your career where you actually don't want to go to work for months at a time. It's okay for you to, like, those are okay. What's not okay is to just, I think, in my opinion, is just to wait for other people to solve those problems. I think it's tremendous insight. And I think that when I look at leaders in and out of medicine, the people that are able to effectively extrapolate this internal process of I need this or I feel this or I fr- am frustrated by this or I want to grow in this particular direction and they extract extrapolate that to a universality of a system or peers, then it provides direction. It's people and I maybe suffer more from the it's only me and I'm going to take this home right. and don't ascribe that to this is a universal feeling and therefore change needs to take place because I have the confidence that this is going on for for everyone. And that's where I think a really interesting leadership personality emerges when you can extrapolate that personal experience into the system. And I think even when you talk about the system, if you go beyond yourself in terms of internal locus control and you were to pick your peers, specifically your physician colleagues in your group, and you were to try to think about like what two or three things could we do in the next year that would that we commonly Enhance. 
all attribute a bit of burnout, whether it's a consultant relationship um, or it's a specific scheduling problem, like how you're doing your schedule or things like working through those is in one way an internal, internal to your primary family's method of solving problems as compared to like having a large multi-system medical group or a department that like the multidisciplinary aspect of the nurses, the nurse leadership, mm -hmm. and all this comes into how you're structured as a independent consultant or a employed Employee physician. Like those are all have eventual impacts on how you solve some of these problems um, and maybe how it builds the culture around them. But I think that's where um, trying to continue to help people reframe on like, what can I do? Not in a burdensome, it's your problem to solve, mm -hmm. but a little bit of, of just like don't wait for other people to solve your burnout problem because because the, they probably won't get it right they probably they might address one aspect of it mm -hmm. but there's often so many factors that they can't get all of them perfect for you so that's kind of where i think you know that's how i'm addressing a lot of this and hopefully over time i build a lot of different perspectives into a place where somebody can get that together. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great insight. Thanks. I, w I wanted to um, pivot because we're talking, um, we're on 50-ish minutes here, okay. um, a little bit about uh, being a woman in emergency medicine and how that, um, if there are any specifics around the practice of emergency medicine, either in community or in academics or just in general, that you think you specifically would counsel hmm. a younger woman in the practice around, um, and it could be during shifts or around shifts or um, parenting around hmm. and you know managing life. Because I think um, in talking with a lot of people, there's just a lot of unique aspects to that that um, that I think a lot of women grapple with, and I wanted to make that an explicit part of talking with seasoned women in the specialty? Um, so I think that as most women in emergency medicine know that this is a career that has fabulous boundaries and that in and of itself is appealing if you're juggling different life components. So you either have a spouse or you have a partner or you have children or you have extracurricular or extra career um, components. So that beauty has attracted a large percentage of women in the field. And I think it also offers the rewards that are immutable. Um, what within my system, we're at a little over 50% female faculty out of the 31. And I think there's 15, 14 or 15 women. There are two women that work full-time. The remainder of them work half-time or three-quarter time. So again, self-directed limits where they have said, this is as much as I can give. Um, that's really important because it's very sexy to be the triple threat, which is another discussion. I don't know that that exists anymore. <laughs> but if you, like, my goal was to be the triple threat, to be a key researcher and educator and fabulous clinician. And at some point, the what you really want out of your job is getting back to burnout, what's giving you the most gratification. Within our kind of practice, though, giving up research at one point 
is not a um, irreversible decision. So I think those kind of things are, are present in the job. One of the things that is consistently missing, whether this is emergency medicine specific or otherwise, is there still is a paucity of leadership in women um, in women in medicine. So at the time that I went to Chicago and went to Loyola, where I was should have been on the track to take a take a tenure track, um, and I was distracted by a small child, and I was distracted by other um, life forces. The system, the expectation that I have now of the system is that there should have been a female faculty mentor that took participation and ownership in where I was at that time to be able to enable and mentor me to have a, have access to a tenure track. Um, knowing if you think you want, like I knew I wanted that, I didn't know how to pursue it. I let a lot of the components go. And if you, if your system does not provide you with a mentor, you have to aggressively pursue that. It could be a male mentor, but having, I think especially since there aren't a lot of female mentors, these are common themes that come in the burnout literature. They come out in the women in emergency mm-hmm. medicine literature. Um, you have to be pretty tough about, I mean, I still see women, seasoned, confident, competent clinical female physicians that come out of the room in the Patients think they were the nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like not knowing everything about oncology. You have to go, yeah, it's just, this is, this is the culture's not going to change for another 20 years when that generation. Are there any specifics you try to do to help the patient and their family understand um, you and your role? I never am without a coat. White coat? I never, I never start out an interview without clearly saying, who I am and what my role is and whether that defines this is the emergency department, this is what we do. Um, and I used to think that was egoism. So one but, question I've asked, I'm going to stop you right there because yeah, it's again true, is like, I think we under, you probably have a specific set of words that you say when you go in the room. Um, it probably doesn't vary that much. That's my right. guess. Would you mind just saying what you, if I were the patient, what you would say? If I were an English speaking patient, you sure. walk in there. Well, if you and and all of our systems are the same. So the first relational thing in our culture right now is, I'm so sorry about your weight. One is that acknowledges so many things. It acknowledges the fact that I'm probably rushed and I probably haven't looked at your chart, and it acknowledges the frustration that is present in that room the minute you walk in. Hi, this is who I am. I'm so sorry for your weight. There's no emergency medicine. There's no emergency department now. And if it's a situation where I haven't looked at their chart, which is 99% of the time, I'm running a little bit behind. I wanted to come in and say hi to you. I wanted to introduce myself and talk to you for a minute. I will have a chance to delve deeply into your chart when your labs are pending. And those two things change the tone at the bedside, which explains their frustration, I've been here for four hours and you don't know anything about me. And two is that I'm present at the bedside where you are right now in the frustration and the weight and all those other things. So those have changed. When I was practicing and I was pregnant and I could not stand up, I had to sit down. And I also found as the literature supports, when you sit down, the patient perception is that you are relaxed and your time at the bedside is longer. None of these are new tricks. These are ones that 
maybe I was a little bit slower to pick up. Um, and the only reason I, I'm going to pause as you pause is and just interject is like, I think, but you continue to find that they add value, even though you can't, you know, change your billing level because you sat down. <laughs> Does that make sense? Totally. And okay. I will say that consistently acknowledging time frame, acknowledging my lack of information about who they are and why they were there and what their past medical history is, and sitting down consistently will add an ease of interacting. Pay 90, totally pays off every single time. And um, okay. uh, and revisiting, revisiting as many times as you can if you open the door and you say things are still pending and we're we're taught that we're taught that as residents we're taught that as medical students it was not part of my practice for the first 10 years because i was about speed and efficiency and being a cowboy um and um and it makes it nicer i mean it as you know it makes it a nicer interaction for me mm -hmm. and um uh so i got you off track on talking no, a bit okay. about for we were talking about introducing yourself to finding your role, particularly in the context of being a woman physician. And I kind of asked you about like how you start the room, but are there any other aspects between mentorship, defining your role as a woman wearing a white coat? It's, this is, I think being older, I don't look like the young little pup mm. anymore. That also, especially with older patients, is still that age difference. I can have a 25-year-old male nurse mm -hmm. and I'm 57 and there's a clear visual difference to that patient on who might that be more seasoned. Sort of, right. So yeah. the seasoned attributes more to physician than exactly. the nurse, even though you might also have a 40-year career nurse in the same, a different patient That's exactly right. With a younger or a, often I would say there's, sometimes a cultural, like, uh, uh, like you were mentioning an older patient, uh, of white, a white male, older patient is probably the first I'm going to attribute mm -hmm. more likely to attribute you as oh, I only saw a nurse during this visit. Correct. <laughs> Two well, nurses. Correct. correct. And we have a, a very large, uh, Hispanic and, um, African American population. Oh. And so they're also what I find in, um, um, and our population is extremely needy, financially disadvantaged. I mean, there's so many disadvantages in our population um, that if I have a um, non-first -eng English-speaking person or I have an older African-American couple or family, that the process of me acknowledging everyone in the room also enhances that relationship. It's not mm -hmm. the, you know, excuse excuse the expression, it's not the white doctor at the foot of the bed barking at the patient right. who's laying down, is looking at everybody in the room and, hi, are you family? And then all of a sudden, it feels more team and it feels more validating. I don't know that I all that I find that advantage is palpable with my educated Caucasian families. Right. I think because they, they're just more, again, these are gross generalizations, and educated Caucasian, educated, African-American, educated, Latino, they're going to have a fluency with the medical system that 75% of my patients don't have. So how do I bridge that so that they're invested in the process? And 
as you know, that they're also invested in the discharge that they don't want. Mm-hmm. That they look at you as a team member in there's nothing wrong and isn't that great so you can go home. <laughs> as opposed to, I came here and I sat for four hours and I got nothing out of this right. and I don't have any more information. So you're not a team member. You weren't a team member with that family or with that right. patient. Hmm. And that takes time. Yeah, that does. And patience and yeah, a certain skill set. It definitely does. That's probably one of the hardest things. So I was just talking about this someday. Like it's it's one of the most to be able to walk in a room and just try to create the world of, especially when you're behind and you're busy, and particularly as probably an attending, if you've had the resident and if they're not entirely sure, four hours into it and like, okay, I'm gonna tell you why your four hour wait with zero tests and mm-hmm. um, zero things for your non-specific sensory problem that's been around for three months so, needs no further right. work up while we're here. Let me ask you a question. When you are following a resident into a room immediately after or 45 minutes later, do you start your interview or um, um, conversation with that patient saying, hi, I'm Dr. Gordon. I'm the supervising doctor. Do you delineate that role as yet another person coming in and asking me the same set of questions? How do yep. you establish that, your role in that? That's exactly chain? what I do. And I think I started doing it like four years ago. I probably did it a little bit, but now I'm, I actually find myself trying to make sure I don't add the word supervising when I'm seeing patients without mm-hmm. a PA mm-hmm. or resident. Mm-hmm. But in those cases, I do probably do more summarization. I am a Brad Gordon. I'm one of the physicians here. In fact, I'm your supervising physician that works with. And and actually, I try to build up whoever I'm with and use their... So, and back to the women discussion, I don't know if this helps, but I try to refer to the all the residents by doctor because mm-hmm. they're often not wearing white coats. Um, the women, I think, are younger and particularly at vulnerable for my... I never saw, or I'm the only doctor. So I try to refer the decision-making back to them and try to help the patient. And I don't go into every nuance of that relationship of like, they're a first year, but I do use the word senior resident to build up mm-hmm. the senior residents. I work with Dr. X. Uh, she's a senior resident. She's working to drive and help your care. I'm So far, I feel like she's been hitting all the right boxes. And I kind of try to build it up. There are some. Right, it's that whole. It's that whole relational and value added. Yeah. Component where, I, I, I'm sure you've had this. The patient's like, I just answered these questions, yeah. and you presented in a package that answering them one more time is enhancement of your care. And I it, and there's so there's two scenarios I often do is one is I it's a very history dependent diagnosis like the risk is like syncope is where or sometimes chest pain as compared to. Um, you, we know your hip is broken. Um, and so in the history dependent ones, I usually use the, I almost always open after I introduce myself with, um, how are you doing right this moment as a way of not saying how, cause that helps me get away from, I know you're in the emergency department. I know you don't want to be in the emergency department. I know you've probably waited and you're frustrated, but it helps me anchor to this moment. How's your pain? How's your nausea? And then I will then kind of either summarize, can I tell you what I know and you tell me where I'm wrong? Is it sort of a teach back kind of thing or a read back? And then second is I'll often do 
in those history dependent ones, I need to hear in your own words what you felt so that I can help add, make sure we're on the right track and hearing it through her or him helps, but I want to make sure I don't misinterpret anything. Mm-hmm. Feels like it both re-empowers the patient to, and gets me through the, you already asked me these questions. There's still a few people like, ah, I'm not going through that again. And there's others who you couldn't stop from telling you. Correct. Well, and <laughs> again, the, and there's like a even. couple of phrase words that um, carried over from residency. Um, and one was this, uh, this brash hand surgeon who at the end of a interview would say, I don't want to be putting words in your mouth. So mm. that's where you're, you feel like you're the physician speaking at the, patient and right. telling them their story and then you say but i don't want to put words in your mouth all of a sudden they're like huh ah, you know or they're like oh no that's fine you know where you've engaged them and you've acknowledged that there's a possibility that you are doing this paternalistic thing that you maybe want to do but you don't <laughs> want you don't want it to be suppressing their ability to participate in that conversation right and the other um quirky thing the same hand surgeon said when you were going to discharge somebody maybe and they didn't feel like the workup had been complete or they were satisfied is, you know, your warranty's not up. And it's a silly <laughs> little phrase, but people are like, Ooh, thank you. And they've just sort of peppered my interactions with patients that acknowledge we're at, we're at, I mean, everybody uses the, we're going to make sure the life threatening things aren't going on. And we're, yeah. our job is to make sure that you're safe and you don't need surgery. And isn't that great? You don't need those. Some patients still want pathology or they want right. answers. So how do you build in certain things that will cooperatively allow them to, you know, complete the workup at the right. point where it's appropriate to complete the workup? Yeah, I think one of my, it's probably obnoxious to hear, but, and I'm almost like embarrassed to do it here, but like I, when I'm kind of on some of those patients where I'm near the end, particularly supervising, but I'm trying to get like, is there anything else we're not addressing? Mm-hmm. I end up doing this in this session to like, do you have any other questions? Which is such an easy thing to kind of go, no, Correct. I kind of like get this obnoxious, like questions, hopes, wants, dreams, and years, fears, needs, desires. And I kind of just trail off into like, I'm thinking of more words. And that seems to like prompt people to both laugh and then realize like, I want to know about any, anything, anything. Right. And then sometimes they're like, oh, well, I guess I don't know, you know, and I don't, I honestly have no evidence to say it helps, but it helps me feel comfortable that I'm not just saying this statement or asking this question that I'm leading the answer. Like, okay, do you have any other questions? Well, Great. Any, and any is a traditional no answer. Right. Do you want any more coffee? It, I mean, right. that is not an open-ended thing. And like, I think the wisdom of that with the humor and with the relational part of it is that what you're giving them is, I hear you. Yeah. And when I have those interactions and I walk out of the room, I feel lighter. And is it all about me? You know, I mean, we're talking about wellness and burnout and that sort of thing. The patient interaction is one component of assessment, but how are we maintaining our ability to stay enthusiastic and engaged in a career that works Yeah, so hard to steal? Well, and I think some of those things I've learned help rebuild me because I can inject the humor. I get a little bit of audience of my small, weak stand-up routine. (laughs) 
and we ta- I've talked with a few others like when you're feeling stressed during a shift and you need some time, um, you know, Jesse used the term use patience as a human shield from interruptions in the department. Just go find a room and talk to somebody and create a connection. And that actually. Oh, that's great. A great way to like, oh, no, I'm with a patient and you can shield out the world. You can build more time up and you um, fill your own battery up and you fill your own battery because you're trying to create humor. You're probably getting into what the whole reason you got in to be a physician in that moment and probably getting something out of it from a you're helping some patient or your diagnostic pathway even if it's, I know what's wrong with you, but I'm not sure. I, I just need to put in some more hour, time, you know, minutes to help you see that we're in, like on that person. I didn't do any tests on or we did everything in their negative. Just putting a little bit more time and sitting down and just like, okay, anything else? Because I, I mean, I really want you to succeed. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Do you think your family's in our, like you can kind of like just trigger some of that and stall in the same way that somebody once taught me, and I think I've, you know, if you're running out of questions, but you know, you'll probably have more is like, well, let me take your pulse, like take a radio pulse and just stand there and think of questions. You're not counting anything. No, do you? <laughs> and your I contact. Know, I, I, and, and I know we're wrapping up. I remember reading um, uh, something out of a book of medical short stories about it was the Dalai Lama's physician at Yale doing rounds and this whole team of white coats were standing watching him do the interview and he sat down and took a radial pulse for 45 minutes <laughs> and the comments around sort of the pace and the breathing and how the patient reacted and that touch component yeah. of an an acceptable way to you're not holding someone's hand they might perceive that as inappropriate right. but you're taking their pulse and so you're physically connected and sitting yeah, down. Yeah, and I think that um, it's, um, I certainly don't do that in every patient, but I think it's been helpful for me. Sometimes I also have done it when I get distracted during an interview and all of a sudden I realize like I'm thinking about dinner that my <laughs> wife was frustrated about and I didn't hear the last three sentences or the last patient that just freaked me out and or the resident who I just had a bad interaction with, or something like that, I realized, like, boy, I'm not listening. Let me just take a deep breath and, and connect and take a pulse and then go, like, can you... It also helps me. Sometimes I just say, like, can you describe that in a different way? As in, I was somewhere else, and I'm <laughs> embarrassed to admit it. So, but, okay, so to wrap up, uh, my general wrap-up question is um, sort of this litmus test on a career, kind of asking when you... When we started by, do you enjoy going to work? Is um, your beautiful daughter has been walking by a little bit as we've talked here, and I, I think it's a great way to ask. Like, do you would you recommend to a young person going into medicine, knowing what you know now, and not knowing what the future holds? Because I certainly had some interactions where I was shadowing some physicians and people, and I didn't have any even doctors in my family, but. Who they were kind of like, I wouldn't go into medicine now. Like, this place is, you know, and I just think of what that world was like in terms of the rate of change. And maybe it's the same as, but it feels like it's in a high rate of change now. But that's a great way to help people just kind of reflect on is this the right thing for the future for other people? Or are there things that you're concerned about? There was a, we had a really good um, how to teach lecture recently, and the, 
um, it was an internal medicine doc who said the biggest liability in the bedside teaching is, I remember when, this is how it used to be, that that provides no direction, mentoring, insight, and it builds sort of frustration within the... um, So being able to advise someone to go into medicine, not knowing what medicine is going to look like in 20 years, is a hard position to be in. Right. One of the things that I think is immutable is that if you are driven with analytics and compassion and you like people and you are okay with a certain level of stress and you don't perceive this career as a um, sort of a rail track to a certain description of success, that you're going to find a place and you still can make it your own. I mean, I think this process that I went through of I had this kind of career, I switched, I switched back means that if I'm able to do that at 57 and reconfigure my clinical world in a way that's gratifying, then somebody else who's starting out now with multiple different choices can make it what they want it to be. But it is not a job. And certainly 20 years from now, we don't know what that job's going to be. Yeah. I think that's, that's, it's, it's almost, um, it's funny because it's an interesting question that I sometimes think, what's the point of asking it? Because what's the world going to look like? It's you predicting what it's going to be like is just not possible in some levels. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you can do what you just did, which is predict that there will probably be such a thing as the discipline of medicine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it will probably be even more vast and wide open to all the different ways you can spend your hours and minutes during a day and still be called a doctor or whatever type of healthcare related Mm -hmm. title. And so I think it's a lot about how do you build this career and trying to help people and um, in whatever kind of way you find rewarding, whether that's in the operating room or um, doing research or um, looking at radiology, look you know, sitting in your living room, reading films from across the country, right. which is a super, you know, that's the right job for the right person. Yeah. And having gone through sort of what we talked about earlier with full physician autonomy, administrative stressors, and now moving back into what is that relationship going to look like? The business relationship with the clinical relationship. The next group of physicians is really going to have a key role in formulating what's the patient need, what's the physician need, what's the wellness component, and how do you stay healthy as a physician? How do you stay healthy fiscally within your organization? And are the universal healthcare needs of the population being met along the way? Yeah, and that's going to be the as population grows and mm, ages and globalism takes hold so that there's telemedicine methods that just we can't even comprehend at this point and you know what is that look like is is really that goes back to me and this genesis is sort of there are how do you build rebirth within this discipline so that you can if it changes around you in a way you can find a new place that works for you for the next period of time and that might be another 10 years or it might be three years and you realize that wasn't the right path and i think um that's helping when somebody answers to me oh i wouldn't want to be a physician like is now it's really i think more telling about them Mm -hmm. and about their perspectives on how much control they have over their life and and i'm hoping 
as I talk about this positive deviant construct of like somehow you're you deviate from the midline in a positive way in sort of the statistical sense. I'm hoping to show people that often that just comes through people that have found ways to um, to introspect, to redefine and continue to maintain an internal locus of control despite extraordinarily high amounts of stress that can be created in this profession because it's life and death as people like to say and we joke about like you save anybody today or anything. Right. I'm like yeah right. I saved three people from from their ankle sprain or their Woohoo. Right. And and what glory. I look is like in the and we didn't get into the interface with technology and where are your insecurities and where technology <laughs> is going. The what I look at is my role in a teaching facility is to is to say this is what I've gotten out of it but you have permission and opportunities to make this exactly the way that you want it to look yeah trial and error yeah and that's really I and and some level it's just being at the top of the food chain in healthcare mm-hmm. and the benefits of that is you can make it how you want it a lot of the time most of the time and the downside of that is you it's very easy to get out of what your role is and <laughs> because you can technically probably figure out how to do anything any micro task from getting the glass of water to doing the surgery to doing the ultrasound as we talk about in medicine and things like that so well uh Thank you. Super fun. It was for, so fun. It is fun, isn't it? Mm-hmm, it's really It's really, fun. like, just like I said, human shield of uh, patience talking with colleagues is a way of just like, I don't have to worry about my email or, right. and somehow I'm working. Right. And it reinvigorates <laughs> you into the, to the larger perspective of why we are in the trenches yeah. when you take a break and revisit the important components of decision-making and gratification. No, it's been really great, Brad. Cool. Thanks for participating. And uh, hopefully sometime we can find a way to do it again. Because like you said, there's so much more I could ask Mm -hmm. and so much more we could each give into it. But um, probably 90 minutes is long enough for anybody. I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but we're getting close. So thank you. Okay, no problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. Please consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts, or you can listen on the web at positivelydeviant.audio. There you can also leave a comment, tell your colleagues, or tweet me up. It helps spread the word. You can also leave your feedback to make them better, or you can give me your guest suggestions. And here's a standard disclaimer. The thoughts and views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals alone. No one you heard here represents the organizations where they work. Now that you've heard that, let's shut it down. Until next time, thanks again for listening.